0: Coming up on the Creativity in Motion podcast, we talk with photographer and musician Bill Stieber.
1: In other words, it's the best songs are visual. And to me, the best photographs are musical.
2: Hi, my name is Chris Hollow.
0: And I'm Mark Masry, and this is episode number three of Creativity in Motion, a podcast about creativity where we talk with creatives of all kinds to find out why they create and especially how they overcome creative obstacles.
2: In this episode, we'll be talking with photographer and musician Bill Stieber about what it's like to maintain creativity on a project that spans over 20 years, plus how he embraces Southern blues in his own band, the Jake Leg
0: Stompers. Before we get started with Bill, I need to tell you about our sponsor, Nosi College of Art. Nosi College opened in 1973 as a fine arts school and has transformed into Tennessee's only private art college. They offer bachelor's degree programs in commercial illustration, graphic design, video and film, and photography. Starting in September 2021, they will begin offering a brand new Culinary Arts Associate's degree. They have a beautiful 55,000 square foot facility that was built with the artistic student in mind. It includes computer labs, production suites, photography and video studios, and a fully stocked equipment cage. Everything students need to get creative. To learn more about Nosi College of Art, you can visit nosi.edu. That's n o s s i.edu where you can see degree program details, faculty information, and samples of student work.
2: We're really excited today to have Bill Steber join us, and he has spent 15 years as a staff photographer for the Tennessean newspaper throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, and has also been working on a 20-year photography project, 20-plus year photography project, documenting Mississippi blues musicians and blues culture at juke joints, churches, river baptisms, and other significant blues traditions throughout Mississippi. He's also a multi instrumentalist, a known sawbender. With bands like Jake Leg Stompers, The Hoodoo Men, and Jericho Roadshow. Welcome to the show, Bill. And is it true? You're also known as the Minister of Mojo.
1: The Justice of Juju also, I think, is one of them. Everybody in the in the band has a nom de jug. We have a Horatio Algernon Whiplash and Jersey Slim Hawkins, Junior Socrates Cottonberry, and you know exactly. very cool. How, yeah. how
2: many people are in the Jake Leg Stompers? Uh well, let's see.
1: We've had more bass players, I think, than Spinal Tap had drummers. <laughs> so it'd be, take a while to go through them all. But currently, we have five, and it's, so it's a it's a revolving
2: cast of characters.
1: Yeah, it's been pretty stable for the last six or seven years. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's 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 been a lot. It's been a lot of fun. It's in, you know, it's a good creative outlet. You know, and as as you know, in the Nashville area, I mean, it's a residency requirement to
2: have some sort of musical project going on the side. Tell me a little bit about your photography career and how you started and and especially how you converted your Tennessean photography days to this long-term project in Mississippi. Well,
1: like most things, um, I fall into things by, you know, avoiding other things and just, you know, started out in photography was, uh, my dad was a kind of fairly serious amateur photographer. My grandfather was at the Tennessean from 1935 to about 78. He took all his own pictures for his column. He, he started the headwaters and tail feathers, the, the first major sportsman column, you know, hunting and fishing, that kind of thing. So I kind of grew up around that, never intended to go into it. Fell into photography in um, high school, started uh, working at the newspaper there, new, um, did the entertainment section. was a cartoonist, uh, one of the photographers for the You know, newspaper in the yearbook and did the same thing in college, all for a lark. I was just, you know, I was interested in music actually. I thought that's what I was gonna do. And then I finally took my first serious photo class in college, and man, everything changed. Everything changed because I'd kind of struggled creatively with what I wanted to do and what I wanted to say. I'm a kind of a person that um, is kind of paralyzed by too many choices. I think that's a fairly common thing. So I thought I was going to be a writer. You know, I, I kind of did writing, but I can't say that I always enjoyed it. It, it seemed, you know, difficult. I, I, I like having written, I think, as some writers have said. But I didn't really enjoy writing. Um, but something about photography was different. It was the one thing of all the creative pursuits I ever did that was the most liberating because it had the most limitations. And I that's something that has been a theme throughout everything I've done creatively is that, you know, self-imposed limits to me is the key to unleashing infinite potential. So with photography, what I love about it is that you only have two choices. I mean, you have either a square or a rectangle that you're looking through and you view the whole world. And so what you put in there, you know, everything, you know, whatever lens you use or what, it still comes down to that frame. And the other choice you have is when you select the moment that you're going to capture. Um, that's it. I mean, everything else is is peripheral to that. I know lighting is the most important and all that, but really, it's that what's in that frame and when you push the button. That's it. So within that, you know, there's an infinite number of choices and things you can do. It's not like the the blank page of uh, of writing or painting or drawing or even a studio. You know that's why I'm, I've all that was gravitated toward journalism and documentary work is because you're limited by what is actually happening and what is actually there and your interaction with that in real time. You don't have time to think about it. You just have to react in real time as things are unfolding. And there's a you know there's no second guessing. You just plow through. And that's to me that is
2: that was a something that just unleashed creativity within me I've been a fan of your work for a long time and uh, specifically your Mississippi um, project and I'm a big fan of black and white and um, I love the subject matter and I can really see your photojournalistic background in your work uh, in your Mississippi project can you tell us how you how that started and why you chose that project and maybe why you kept on for so long
1: right well like many things I said you know we chose me in some ways. Um, I've been looking for ways, not consciously, but subconsciously, I think to bring together the, all the things that I'm passionate about. And to me, music is, is the one driving force. It's the, it's the great spiritual thing in, in the world. I mean, when I was going to church, when I was a kid, even if I didn't like the sermon, I did love the music. Music to me is everything. Um, I've, there's a soundtrack in my head all the time, no matter what I'm doing. There's a song I'm humming people. I've had people say, you must be in a good mood. You're humming. I say, no, I'm actually in a terrible mood, but uh, there's still a song in my head. So I, when I do th- anything visual, it is primarily, I interpret it th- musically composition wise, the way I m- move in rhythm with what's going on. If it's an event, it's there's a, a musical element to it. So when I, I, Was at the paper, I'd started in 89, 90, Uh, then 92, we were, I was sent with a writer who's from Mississippi down to do the Natchez Trace. We were doing a travel story for the launching of the new travel section in 92. The new presses were online and we had, um, the the Natchez Trace had just opened up. They just finished it. So we went down there all the way from Nashville to Natchez. And he says, do you want to go back on the trace? I'm like, I think we've got enough for the story. He says, I want to go through the Delta. I, you know, I've just had this love for this music my whole life. And I lived in Mississippi when I was a little kid, but we lived in the central part. And I didn't remember ever going through the Delta. I really wanted to. And so, and that was the best way to do it. Cause starting in Natchez, uh, in the old South where, um, I mean, all the, Not only all the the old antebellum mansions and the Spanish moss, but the ghosts. And it's such a deeply haunted landscape. So coming out of that and then going up through um, Port Gibson and then the lower part of the Delta and the kudzu takes over from where the Spanish moss was. And then you come out on these big flat plains and then the sharecropper shacks. and, And then suddenly I just viscerally felt the context of the music that I had loved. Since I was a kid, I discovered my dad's Jimmy Reed and John Lee Hooker records when I was a little kid. And suddenly it all made sense. And I was just shot through with electricity. I mean, unlike anything I'd ever felt like I, this is, you know, I'm a duck and this is my pond. I mean, I just felt alive there. Well, we stopped in the Delta. Somebody had given me some names of some people to maybe to visit. So we stopped and I visited with a uh, son, um, Thomas. And he was in his late 60s. He was not in good health. And I walked in to his little shotgun shack, and there was a full size casket there in the front room with a, looks like a dead woman in it. It was a, one of his folk art sculptures. And then there was a, a, a on the shelf, there was a, a clay skull with human teeth. And I was, and then his son Pat took me all the way to the back. And son is sitting there on the edge of a bed, and he's smoking a cigarette. And the cigarette ash has burned all the way down to the filter, and he hadn't touched it. It's this arch, arching ash. And I just sat there, mesmerized, just talking to him, listening to him. He got out and played some music. I blew a little harp with him, like you know, any naive guy, you know, uh, would do. But we had such a good time, and I just suddenly was like. I cannot wait to get back here. I have to visit him. I have to, I have to be, I just have to be here. And I went, we went back home and did the thing. And I was making uh, plans for a trip to come back in the next spring. There were some festivals I wanted to go to down there. And by the time I got back, uh, he was already back in the hospital. He had had, a, a, I guess, a brain cancer, brain tumor. And uh, by June of the next year, which was 93, he actually died. So really the only significant time I spent with him was that one day. And and then I suddenly had this urgency. I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, now that I found what I want to do with my time, um, what else is and who else is here that is on the cusp of being lost? And that's kind of what, what started. I mean, it started out just a handful of things. You'd find out about somebody. And then so do you know anybody else that plays? And then you go. So it became almost like a. I don't know, this quest, this treasure hunt, this, and then pretty quickly on, you know, I I wanted to get beyond just the stereotypical, you know, here's an old man on a porch with a guitar kind of thing, you know, and what else, what else is here? What are the, what's left of the culture that created this music that is the building block for all the music that we have? Um, So you know, river baptisms and and people that still did traditional farming. I wanted to see if anybody still handpicked cotton or applied with mules or any of this. I wanted to see what was left. If any kind of uh, sort of like um, uh, superstition or religious retentions in the culture that come still left over from Africa, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I go in extremely naive and enthusiastic about all this stuff. But the more that you find out, the more you find out you don't know. And the, But it's it, it became a self-fulfilling kind of generated engine that just went on and on and on and still continues to this day.
0: Yeah, that's a wealth of material there. And you're, I'm sure you're making portraits. I'm sure you're, you know, listening. And, and I don't know if you were trying to record conversations and doing all that. Were you doing that also? Yeah, uh,
1: that was secondary because um, I wish that I, there had been a way to do more video. But I got very little video, especially in the early years, because there was such a... The thing is, is that first thing you have to really build is trust, because you're talking about coming in another outsider, coming into an area that's traditionally been, you know, with folks that have been exploited by outsiders. And so, to me, it was so important to establish, you know, real friendships, real relationship, and real trust. So mainly just came in doing still, still photography. Um, video would often mean that, Oh, what are you trying to you making a film? Whatever. So I just stuck mostly to the still photography, but, uh, but I would get out like in a Marantz tape deck and interview folks, or sometimes just let the tape run while I would do a session, um, photographic session. And then later on, I, you know, with some folks, um, I did do some, you know, recorded them playing and stuff and like these field recordings. As a result, I mean, I've got hundreds of hours probably of interviews of, you know, like every time I would go every fall to Moon Lake and and photograph the baptism down there around Labor Day weekend, I just would record the whole thing. Or when I would go to a church service where I'd go to a funeral for one of my, you know, blues musician friends, uh, just record the whole thing. Just for no reason that that somebody needs to. Somebody needs to make a record of this. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I've still got in mind um, audio-wise and, and some video. You know, later on, um, with certain folks, it was okay to do some video. But here again, I always want to make sure, you know, you want to treat people with respect uh, for their time and, you know, for
2: their art instead of just feeling like you're just taking something from them. I was going to ask you about approaching people you don't know right? and sort of the cold call of, Hey, can I take your photograph? Right. And I was remembering in college that I used to, you used to, have to show contact sheets on the wall. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they always said was you don't have any port, like you have to go into their world and get there, right. get, get them. And I remember I still have it. There's one photograph in particular It was the first person that I ever walked up to and asked and bothered them, Mm -hmm. right? I was afraid afraid to bother them. Walk up and ask, can I take your photograph? Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of time to kind of work up to that. Mm -hmm. And I finally did it. The guy goes, I don't care. (laughs) It was like, that was kind of a breakthrough. Do you have a, a photograph or an image that kind of set you off on your journey I mean, you were just talking about the guy that you met, but was there a photograph associated with that that kind of began your journey?
1: Well, actually, I'll take it all the way back from my very first photo class. Um, our very first assignment, my very first photo class was go shoot a roll of film. Just He just wanted to see what you do. It's just technically and compositionally, right? Well, the second actual assignment was go photograph 20 strangers. That's great. You know, go and, and but here's the thing, you know, the, it should have some theme. So some people would go and, like, go to the gas station and get 20 people pumping gas. The point was not to make a great photo, but was just to force you to go and approach strangers on the cold call thing. So I decided, I went to the flea market, and I photographed people holding the things that they had bought. I like the idea of the incongruity. Like, for instance, there was this, you know, kind of very Baptist middle-aged woman with the teased hair holding this poster. that had a picture of... Uh, four women in the back of a pickup truck with their butts showing and it's, and it said hauling ass, (laughs) you know, and she's looking very sheepishly. I think she'd bought it for, I don't know, her son's bedroom or whatever. I don't know. But just that kind of thing. Uh, Just, it was just hilarious. You know, it kind of like photographing people with their dogs that they look like kind of thing. And so that was the most terrifying thing I'd ever done at that point. But it was pretty surprisingly easy People want to be validated. People want to be seen for the most part. You know, I mean, some people, I think it used to be easier then than it is now. Um, People on now are much more uh, kind of visually sophisticated and jaded at the same time. It's like, okay, what's in it for you? What are you doing this for? What's, you know, what's the deal back, you know, with then it was like, you know, I was a kid with a can, Hey, I've got a school assignment. Can I take your picture?
2: Oh, sure. If you're polite, most people just don't care. it's fine. You know? Yeah, yeah. What, what the worst that can happen is they say no, right? And you say thanks anyway and leave.
1: No, exactly. You know I, that's something that, and, and it it doesn't always get any easier because every person in every situation is unique, and you, it's just I tell you what it's like is I used to do door to door canvassing when I was in college for a organization, and um, and man, it was some of the most satisfying and terrifying and difficult thing I had ever done. Because no matter what happened at the last door, you know you knock, you literally knock on the door, and you've got to deal with okay, this is a whole new situation. You know, it could go really well, it could go really bad, and you just got to read the situation. And that's become as a photographer, it, it really becomes second nature and intuitive, where you just have to, especially working in the newspaper work.
0: You mentioned earlier about uh, learning to take photos and, 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 and the limitation of photography, and you basically have the, the viewfinder, you know, you have the square, or the rectangle, and you decide what goes in there, and you also decide when to push the button. And as a photojournalist, I'm sure you're, a lot of times you must feel like you're just interpreting what's in front of you with your camera. So on a project like the, the, the Blues Musicians, Uh, when you, where this is your baby, right? Yep. How do you get from just photographing what is in front of you? And how do you start to turn it into something that has more of a unique vision and more of a unique voice that people can recognize as, this is a Bill Steber photograph. This is not a photograph that anyone else could have taken or did take. You know, how do you use that that square, that rectangle, and how do you decide, you know, make those decisions to 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 elevate it into something that's been imbued with your creativity as opposed to just a picture of what's in front of you?
1: Really glad you asked that question because that is probably one of the primary driving forces that has kept me passionate and interested about doing this. For you said over twenty years, uh, the first picture was August of ninety-two, so we're a year and a half shy of 30 years that i've been doing this um so it really you know it cuts down as a as a documentary photographer there's you know it's not just the limitations of what's in the frame and when you push the button you also have tremendous amount of limitations as to what kind of liberties you can take with what you constitute as the truth so in other words You can do a portrait of somebody. You can make them go to another location. You can, you know, do lighting to show that okay, this is a portrait. This is not something I just came upon, but it needs to have the integrity of truth of of that person that you're not telling something untrue about that person. Um, So you have all the limitations that you would have through, you know, journalism and doing being a documentary photographer, but with this project in particular. Um, I, I also bring to bear, there's no way that I'm not going to, it's not going to be filtered through me. There's no way that it's going to be objective, even though it's everything I've ever released, I believe is true. It's not objective. So what is subjective? My, what's subjective is, is my feelings about the subject, my feelings about the music, my feelings about an area, the, what I choose to photograph and the way I choose to that wants to convey an emotion. That wants to convey um, what is what is it that I want to say about an area? Like for instance, um, I did a big uh, cover story on Yazoo County blues for Living Blues a few years, two thousand seventeen. Well, uh, Yazoo County is kind of a it's a weird platypus within all the subcultures of Mississippi blues. You got the Delta, you got the Hill Country, you know, you got the coast, you got all these places. Yazoo County occupies the area right below the Delta, but right above the part where it's the deep South. There's a lot of kudzu down there. It's very hilly, like the hill country. Um, It's really unique. It's a really emotionally and geographically unique place. And it's a, and it, there's a, the music that comes from that County um, is associated with Skip James and, and Jack Owens. It's that minor keyed, a uh, very haunting music, and that echoes the landscape. You driving on the roads in rural Yazoo County, there's a lot of like cut banks and overhanging trees and Spanish moss and old. I mean, it's creepy. So it, there's a reason why I think the music that came out of that area. To me, music always reflects the landscape from where wherever you are. I mean, it's it reflects like you know. Uh, before trains, all the music never went faster than, than uh, a horse would kind of lope and gallop. And then as the train came in, that's when we started having like the Chicago sound, like, you know, that real shuffle kind of sound. And then when you get to the urban, you know, full on, you know, then you get more like out there jazz and free jazz and more cacophony. It reflects the environment. So when I'm thinking about doing Yazoo County, I listen to a lot of that music, and when I'm driving around, I'm always carrying that soundtrack in my head. And I said, "What? How can I approach this where visually it will look like that music sounds?" And so that is kind of the probably my most famous photograph I've ever made is the black cat with Jack Owens and Bud Spires in the background, and that's and that's it. I mean that that's Yazoo County. That's you know Jack Owens grew up with Skip James playing that minor keyed haunting blues, you know, the devil got my woman blues. I'd rather be the devil than to be that woman's man must've been the devil that changed that woman's mind. You know, it was, it's this, you know, really heavy, creepy kind of music. And so that photo just kind of speaks to the feeling of that, of that music. Whereas it'll be something very different in the hill country, which is also kind of shrouded in kudzu and all that, but it's a much more open, expansive groove oriented you know, um, Junior Cambrose music and R.L. Burnside and that stuff, it has, um, it's much more, you know, spine-moving, you know, groove music, but also it has a sort of a isolated kind of area feel, you know, with all the the landscape up there, these rolling, these rolling hills, and the music just kind of rolls, whereas the Delta, you know, it's flat and hot and expansive and it's much more aggressive and percussive was slapping strings and encompasses the sounds of the train because the train is really what
2: built the Delta. Being with your photojournalistic background, do you, you mentioned that speaking the truth in your photography and you're not going to misrepresent anybody. And that's, and that's the kind of thing that you have to build trust right. with the people that you're photographing. Did you ever find that you once you kind of got started, you became invisible and you could actually work photojournalistically without sort of having to be in the way. Yeah. And I can tell you about um, different philosophies
1: for that, especially when you start talking about in a, when you're working in like in a juke joint. So, like, for instance, um, in a lot of it, it, there's not that many. There's certainly fewer now. So I became a kind of a presence in a lot of these places. So the you know, same people over and over again, I'd go over. And, but in the beginning. Um, you know, first time I would go, almost always I would have already know the band. So you go early, meet the club owner and say, hey, I'm going to shoot some pictures of the Wesley Jefferson band tonight. They're cool with it. I'm just going to do some stuff. Maybe for magazine, just just want to shoot. Uh, is it everything okay? Do you have any kind of restrictions? Is it okay? If, you know, say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's so why I put up a light maybe in the corner or something. And then you get there and then I just would be obvious. I mean, I would just have all my gear. And most of the time people would come up and say, Hey, how much do you charge for photo? They thought I was just doing party photos for sale. I'll say, Oh no, no, there's no charge. I mean, if you want your picture made, I'll make your picture and then I'll come back down on my next trip and I'll bring you a copy of it or give me your address and I'll send you a copy. So there was another photographer that I was working with down there a lot who, um, very different personality. I'm, I'm much more kind of outgoing and he was kind of dour and he, he would, his idea was to be a surveillance camera, to stand off on of the wall and wide angles or whatever and just trying not to be seen. And to me, the only way to be not be seen would be to completely, you know, I mean, start buying beers for folks and go out and dance with them. And just, in other words, so put yourself in the middle of it so much so that they just forget about you. And I, to me, you get a lot more, you a lot better pictures that way too. And the whole time, you know, you're just, you know, you just, it's part of the energy that you put out. People know whether you're cool or not just by the energy you put out. So, you know, you talk to folks and whatever, just do whatever it takes just to kind of be relaxed in yourself and be relaxed around other people. And mostly it's just, you respect people. You just show genuine interest and love for people and, and that, you know, they pick up on that. So, you know that over the course of a night you know then you're like everybody completely you're just like oh that's that guy so i'm like oh that's the camera guy so i have got a reason to be there it's not i'm not just like you know some people think it's a, a narc was why was why a you know why is he here and then you're like oh no no i'm just i'm shooting pictures like oh okay um so anyway that that's that was been my approach
0: how have you kept your level of creativity up since this project started you mentioned your your almost 29 years into this now, and how have you uh, managed to keep it fresh? How have you not f- sort of fallen into the trap of shooting it the same old way mm-hmm. and making it repetitive, but something that's new and exciting and, and, and different over the, over the years?
1: Well, in the beginning, it was because out of a sheer terror of not knowing what I was doing. Because, I mean, I was already been a photographer for a few years, but I'd, uh, I decided that I needed a challenge. So, and I'd only ever shot 35 millimeter and little four by five in college, but you know, not much to speak of. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to commit to a format and I want to do it on a Hasselblad because, you know, I'm going to miss probably most of the good pictures, especially in the beginning, because it, it it's just not as fast reacting than a 35 millimeter but the ones I am going to get are going to be a massive beautiful you know negative that I can make exhibition prints with so i you know at first I'm just I'm not only trying to figure out how to navigate within uh, um, an area where I don't have many contacts and you know I'm trying to learn it but I'm learning a format that I've never worked with before and it was really challenging and it was so much to discover you know, just all constantly for the, I'd say for the first 10 years, it was just constantly more people to discover, more places, more ways of approaching it, expanding out into other aspects of the culture, getting into parchment penitentiary, trying to get access to all this stuff. And then after a while, you're just like, Oh, okay. I've got so many bags in my tricks in my bag. So I, you know, how many other things can I do? And so I kind of, backed off for a few years in a way I didn't really put a lot of emphasis on it and then in the early 2000s um, I got into I finally uh, took some classes in uh, doing the wet plate thing and one of the things a lot of the old guys that I originally met were gone by then so I'm still documenting their children and other new folks that come up but then I started concentrating more on those atmospheres, the landscape, um, doing other portraits, going back and re-photographing folks in the, in the wet plate process, which is an entirely different thing. I, I, I originally went to the Hasselblad, so I would slow down. But I got to where I could work really fast with the Hasselblad, almost as fast as 35 millimeters. So then I'm like, okay, you got to keep slowing down. That's when I went to, to the wet plate. and then And I've been doing that down there for over 10 years.
0: For the listeners who don't know what wet plate is, just talk briefly about that.
1: Okay. Well, wet plate is, it's literally like the third major photographic process from the invention of photography, but it's the second generation. So you've originally had, you know, Daguerre types and Calotypes that were simultaneously kind of invented in France and England, and they dominated for the first 10 years. The advantage of Daguerre types is that they were the most beautiful, I think, objects ever been able to created in photography, but they're one-offs. The calotype was a paper negative, which you could make copies of, but it didn't have the clarity and the sharpness of a daguerreotype. Well, in 1851, uh, both of those things came together um, in in the wet plate collodion process. So you had you could photograph on glass um, and make prints from that. So that dominated for 30 years. But the problem with it is, is that it's extremely slow. I mean, like, if it had an ISO rating, it would probably be 0.3, 0.5. I mean, it doesn't even register. The the sensitivity is so low. And you have to create the negative uh, on-site, uh, pouring the collodion, dumping it in a silver tank, um, pulling it out uh, You know, after three minutes, and then you've got about a 10-minute window where you have to expose it and then develop it on-site, or it'll dry out and you'll lose the image. So it is extremely labor-intensive and extremely difficult to to use. It's almost only for, you know, outdoors and bright sunshine. Um, But it has this sort of dreamy, ethereal, timeless quality to it that, once again, um, it kind of interprets uh, a portrait or a landscape in a way that traditional photography doesn't. In in one sense, it has more artifice. In the other sense, it has more grounded reality in this weird – Sort of dichotomy, um, and and I've you know I've gone back and done a lot of uh, portraits of folks that I had done in film in the in the wet plate process, and it's just another kind of approach.
0: You have to imagine uh, Bill going out with uh, first of all a, a giant camera on a giant tripod, and. Instead of photographing on film, these are glass plates that have been pre-coated with a a chemical to make them light sensitive. And then in the moment, um, making the photo, which might take anywhere from 30 seconds to four or five minutes, depending on what he's photographing. And if he's making a portrait, that means that the person has to hold still for that long. And then right after that, that glass plate Is taken into a dark room, which is on site, which could be out in somebody's yard, or it could be in the woods, or it could be by the river, or it could be in a city street. You have to carry that into the back of your van, and instantly start that process at at that time. And you do that for each picture that you take. You don't take a bunch of pictures and then process a bunch of plates. You take you photo. You you expose a plate. And then you go process that plate and then you decide if you're going to do it again. So when you say you had to slow down.
1: <laughs> I think my record, you know, uh, a couple of times I've, I photograph events, you know, like there was the, the second black banjo gathering in um, Boone, North Carolina. Dom Flemons, my friend from the Carolina Chocolate Drops, invited me there to, to do some portraits of some of the folks there. I think we made about 20 plates that day over the course of eight hours. And I, that's about the most I think I've ever made in one day, and that's only because I I didn't have to move. I could set up and bring the people to me, and just and just run through them. Because you know, even at that rate, I think the maximum uh, images I can make in an hour would be about three. If you wanted to go any slower, you'd be drawing. Well, I thought, with pe- yeah. pen and no. paper. <laughs> I think etching, maybe, etching, you know. Yeah. That's you so know, you know, once I get that done, I can be like, uh what the guy uh, in my left foot, and then I just like only draw with my foot. That's right. How can you make it more
2: difficult, Bill? Right. That's the thing is that,
1: I, you know, maybe it's because I grew up, you know, this sort of self-hating Protestant, you know, that just I've got to suffer. So, you know, whatever it, it, it takes to make me suffer more, That, you know, slows it down, makes it more difficult, more, more. That's why I think I called subconsciously my whole project is called Stones in My Pathway, because it's not only about, you know, the culture that that comes from folks that have had struggle, but it's also about all of our daily struggle and and, you know, overcoming obstacles. And um, and man, you know, we're blessed by our obstacles, you know,
2: and you're out there in, in the dead of the summer and the heat with some chemicals that are probably not that good for you. Rubber gloves, sweating your ass off to (laughs) to make one picture that may or may not be any good. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no,
1: man. It's like there's some of us that are, uh, you know, that I guess enjoy suffering more than others. So, but the reward, man, it's so great when you you know what. The more obstacles you have,
2: and the more you overcome them, the more. You know, the better the payoff. We're going to link uh, in the show notes. We're going to link your website so people can get a get a look, see at what your not only your Mississippi stuff, but the wet, the wet plate stuff as well.
0: All right? Yeah. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Another thought I had just listening to you talk is a lot of people when they think about creativity, they think about how to be creative so they can have a creative output. And it seems to me that that create that you're almost more like a medium that creativity just comes out of you and it's all you can do to control it and channel it in, in, in the arena of photography or music, like creative output is who you are all the time.
1: That's kind of the goal, I guess. Um, I I feel like I was really fortunate in that, you know, I grew up in the rural South. I grew up, I'm from, you know, about 50 miles South of here in Nashville. Um, from a, you know, big, fairly, you know, religiously conservative family and all that kind of stuff. And so normally you would say, oh, I, you know, I did this to rebel against my upbringing. No, not at all, man. My family, um, they are, you know, my mom's family from 14 generations in Tennessee and they're all um, incredibly creative and in a a manner of just like, it's not a big deal. My grant, I was, partially raised by my grandmother, you know, she lived up the street from me. She made corn shuck dolls, um, for the kids. She made quilts. Um, when I'd stay with her, when I was a little kid, you know, we would, she would just take a milk car, uh, like an egg carton and just like, okay, what can we, what can toy, can we make from this? So everything we did was just pure creativity. And I had uncles that, you know, either painted or wood carved or just everybody made crafts or, it was just really kind of natural, but it took me a long time to kind of find what I wanted to say. I didn't really have any confidence in any of this whatsoever. It was really when I discovered photography in my teen years and early 20s that I finally gave myself permission. But now that I'm thinking about it, all the things I've chosen, even within the music, um, it's still pretty prescribed. I mean, I still do my own interpretations of traditional Southern music or whatever. I don't have, I don't give myself that, um, you know, ultimate freedom to completely, you know, explore from, um, you know, from a place of,
2: of just, you know, pure art for art's sake. Well, let's, let's talk about sort of like, if you have a, you know, graphically speaking, you have this big circle of photography that's, that is, that is your life. And then you have another circle of, of, of your life, which is music. And the two overlap pretty hard. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So transitioning from photography into your own music, um, tell us about your how you started on with music. Was your family musical, and how did how you ended up where you are now with the Jake Leg Stompers and the other projects you're involved with? I would say, yeah, my family they actually played a
1: lot of music before I was born. My uh, my grandfather born 1902. He played claw hammer, banjo, and harmonic and stuff. And I knew him, but I never got to hear that part of it. He had quit, I think, probably by the 40s. He had kind of not played anymore. But we had a huge tradition of a cappella singing around my grandmother playing the piano. Uh, my mother just sang all the time and you know, would grab me up as a little kid and teach me how to swing dance like she did in the 50s. And my grandmother had a piano, and I would stay get off the school bus and every day I would get up there and I'd play hunt and peck and just pick out melodies just naturally. Uh, eventually I got a dulcimer and fell in love with that. I got a harmonica, fell in love with that. Um, music was always the single most important thing in my, in my life. And, and it was neither encouraged nor discouraged for the most part. It was just one of those things, but it was, um, yeah, it, I, I had, a, you know, some friends of mine, one friend in particular, Bob Gray, is a good songwriter. I played as the temporary member of his band for about 10 years because I wasn't going to do it for a living, you know. Um, but I was the only one that stuck with him for all these years. And he would say, like, oh, I, I hear some mandolin on this. Um, I'm like, well, do you play mandolin? No. Do you? No. He says, well, go buy one and learn it. So I bought a mandolin, and I learned it enough to play on that part. And, and that's it kind of built up over the years like that. Just pick up, you know, um, six or eight different instruments of various, you know, proficiency. And then by the time I left the paper in 2004, I had had this um, in my head for about 10 years that, man, I would really like to do it like a jug band, something really fun where you could do traditional music. And and it just, there was no way I had time working at the paper, you know, 60 hours a week, you know, it's like. Um, but suddenly I had some time on my hands. And so I ran into uh, an old college professor of mine named Ron Bombardi at the uncle Dave Mekin days. And I said, well, let's get together and jam sometime. And that quickly turned into a group with him and some of his other students, current students. And we started playing old time music and jug band music and old blues and ragtime. And, and then by the fall, you know, we kind of had a band and it's, um, that's been 16 years, <laughs> you know? just as a little side distraction and we've gotten to play, you know, festivals all over the country and we put out how I many four or five albums four albums, four albums we need to get our
2: fifth album out. <laughs> well, how does it how does being creative in photography inform or how different is it I guess your creativity in photography versus your creativity in music? It's a different part of your brain or is it similar? I, to me it's really not because like I said Music informs
1: my visuals, and, um, and visuals informs my music. So, in other words, when you when you when you when you're bringing a song, especially if you're a story song, you really kind of have to imagine the scene. That's you know another good friend of mine, Steve Gardner, kind of taught me. He says you don't have to memorize the lyrics. You know, if you're doing an old song, you have to just kind of internalize the story. So once you've done that then you tell that story in your words. So if you don't remember the exact way that it was recorded, you know, by Gus Cannon in 1928 or whatever Memphis Jug Band, um, you know, just tell the story. And, and so, you know, you just kind of make up the, the, you know, whatever your version of it on, on site, especially if you forget the lyrics. Um, <laughs> so in other words, it's the best songs are visual. And to me, the best photographs are musical. In matter of fact, the only way I started playing music out um and gave myself even permission to do that is after a lot of the folks that I had met originally were starting to die off and I learned certain songs that that were otherwise maybe not recorded or heard stories that otherwise wouldn't be out so I see myself as more of a an emissary to you know to, to the real thing so I, I you know I, I have been obsessive about documenting, um, an entire couple of generations of one area, but that's to say, you know, yeah, hopefully I have a singular vision that people will, will look at, but it, really the important thing is the content is, is to go, you know, go listen to Junior Kimbrough's music, go listen to RL Burnside, go listen to big Jack Johnson, go listen to Jack Owens, you know, go to Mississippi, go to the Red's juke joint, you know, meet Red. Um, you know, yeah, I'm glad it's my photo that made you want to go down there and do that, but, you know, go and give, give money and props to the folks that, that originated this, this extremely important and viable, you know, culture. So I, I, that's what, that's to me, my life goal is to, is to get people turned on to this. You're a conduit. That's it. That's, that's really, I mean, that's what I, that's what I aspire to. I mean, I'm like, I don't, I don't claim any authority whatsoever other than the authority over, um, you know, authenticity of my own experience. And that's it. That's all I have.
2: How often do you play? And I know it's weird times these days, but (laughs) like when you, when you go out to play, are you playing out anytime soon? We can kind of catch you or,
1: Uh, well, it's about to get cranked up. You know, obviously there was no gigs for 2020 for us other than, you know, yard shows with social distancing for friends out outdoors. When we had nice weather, we got to where you know, a couple times a month, we'd get together for these epic jams. And it turned out that was a great thing because suddenly we weren't doing our, you know, just standard repertoire. We were, like, started playing a lot of honky-tonk tunes. And, and you know, we played a lot of John Prine this summer after he passed, you know. And just whatever, you know, going back to play old Neil Young tunes and stuff that I grew up playing. And so it's been really fun to kind of let that... So now that's going to get refiltered back into when we things start back up this year is to, you know reinvigorated hopefully um so yeah we got some festivals coming up uh the three foot festival in meridian mississippi and i think that's in may second second or third week in may stompers are going to play that um uh who Do men are and uh and another group i'm in called the stoop down rounders which is a little fun collective with Libby ray watson and uh, austin walking Kane and some other guys that's going to be at the juke joint festival in clarksdale the second weekend in. April and um, Hill Country Picnic, North Mississippi Hill Country Picnic is back on this year. Last weekend in June, just north of Oxford. That's a great festival, man. That is one of the great festivals. I get to play that again this year, so you know I'm looking forward to it. I mean, there's things are going to be opening back up now that vaccines are rolling out and the weather's getting good and we can play outside. Really looking forward to kind of getting back on the boards and
2: getting the calluses back on my fingers. Well, Bill, you were kind enough to bring some instruments today, and we were hoping that you would play us a couple of songs. Would you mind?
1: Oh, we'd love to. We're going to do this old song from 1930. It's uh, the Memphis Jugman's version of In the Jailhouse. Now, I've got a 1920s Mauna Loa banjo ukulele and we've got mr uh mr sam rorix over here otherwise known as horatio algernon whiplash we call him noisy in the Jake leg stompers you're about to find out why he's got this washboard here that's uh, well you're about to hear he's got everything in the world on this thing it's only illegal in about four states so we're in tennessee so we're in good shape i
3: have a, per- I have a permit
1: that's a you know, permit to carry here we go in the jailhouse now
2: That just makes me so happy. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic.
1: <laughs>
2: kind man. Of, <clears> kind
1: <throat> of hard to be, uh, kind of hard to be unhappy when you got a banjo ukulele in your hand. I that's right. Man.
2: I, don't, I don't even know what that feels like. That's amazing. We cannot thank you enough for coming today oh, yeah. and it's been a joy talking with you and I can't wait for everyone to get to, to get to hear this and to come out and watch your shows and to check out your work on your website. We'll give all those uh, links on the show notes. So they can follow you and stalk you.
1: I, that's fine, man. And I really want to appreciate you guys for doing this. Uh, this has been a great experience for us, and I respect both of y'all's work very much and really appreciative that you guys are putting in the time to, um, to, to spread the spread the word on creativity.
2: Well, one thing we like to do before we come to a complete end on the show is we like to ask our guests, what was their most recent impulse buy? <laughs> And so we'll we'll go next, but you get to go first. What was the most recent thing you bought that was like just a complete impulse buy?
1: A 14 CD set of um, music that is the precursor to the influence of Sun Ra.
2: That's out there. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you find something like that?
1: Where do you find anything like that? Uh, eBay a- and discogs, man. You <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Very
2: good, Mark. What did you end up buying?
0: Well, I was uh, out the other day, and I just absolutely couldn't resist a um, a ten outlet, four foot long uh, strip outlet for my garage. You yeah. know, that's
2: that's pretty that's pretty good. That's a good impulse buy. I mine is I feel kind of lame because I wanted some longer XLR cables for this uh, recording device that we're using here, and I opted for the colored ones. So, so it's not like your typical stage black. There's like an orange one and a red one and a blue one and a green one so that I can connect to each mic and I know which one's which. Feels lame, but I'm, I'm sure very it's very practical. I'm sure it's going to be very practical. It, it was an impulse. That's not an impulse buy. That's that's practical. It was fairly practical. Yeah, I have to agree. That, that was not the best, not the best impulse <laughs> buy I've ever made. <laughs> we want to thank Bill Steber for coming by today and also our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. And thank you for Sam Rorex for helping us out as well today. Um, We're going to have a couple extra songs we'll put in the show notes for you. So uh, be sure to check those out.
0: And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Or to follow Penumbra Entertainment on Instagram and Facebook. And while you're at it, make your way over to the Penumbra website, penumbra-ent.com. For all the show notes from this and other episodes. And uh, you'll also find links to everything we've discussed here, including Bill's shows and uh, possibly some links to his music. And uh, we will see you on the next episode of Creativity in Motion.